Hello and welcome to Out to Lunch, currently trading as In for Lunch, the podcast that sends top food directly to the homes of our top guests so that we can chat and eat over a video feed. Today, I'm dining virtually with the star of Being Human, him and her, and years and years, it's actor, writer and art enthusiast, Russell Tovey. David Bowie, David Bowie stood up with a man. <laughs> Tell us. He was, in a, he was in a white suit and you're like, oh for God's this sake. is fucking bonkers. So, Russell, thank you for agreeing to stay in and have lunch with me. <laughs> You're welcome. But your food is on the way. I can see the icon of the little bike moving towards you. You were in lockdown like everyone. I was wondering mm. whether there was any benefit from having done him and her, which in principle, I mean, obviously it's a drama and it's pretend. But until you got to the wedding, you shot almost all of it, in, it locked in one room. Quarantined already, yeah. You know, and actually filming that, you was actually locked in this boiling hot set. I remember we'd all just be sweating on these sheets covered in, like, cheap meat, all this dodgy food that we were all eating, like, scoffing toast. Not enough about you. Oh, I see. <laughs> but, yeah, it was... Yeah, that's definitely given us some... Uh, given me some practice for it. But, you know what? I spoke to my agent when this all first happened, and she said, like... Actors and artists are the most well-adjusted to this because a lot of actors are used to just sitting around at home anyway, being out of work. And a lot of artists are very solitary when they're creating art. So it's like, and writers as well, in some way, creative people already have that solitary initiative to their work anyway, in some ways. There is that, although I am terrified of an outpouring of profound and important work about love against the background of coronavirus. <laughs> love in the time of corona. If Russell T. Davis, who's also done this show and who I know you obviously know because you work with him on Years and Years, started writing drama, that I'd watch. If he wrote Years and Years now, you'd be like, you're cheating. This is, this is what's happening. The fact that he's a prophet, prophet T. Davis, and he predicted that this weirdness before is just like amazing. But so many people, again, I think we kind of like self-flagellating because so many people are binging. Contagion's the most watched movie in the world right now. People are binging Years and Years. In some ways... Like you want to watch a horror movie to scare yourself. Now, I need to go back when you were a kid growing up in Essex. Was mm. food a, a functional yeah. thing? Was it an important thing? Did your parents cook at home? What, what went on? Food was fuel growing up. I would live on breakfast cereal was my own snack. I became a breakfast cereal connoisseur. What was your go-to? I mean, the dream was Fruit Loops, but they were rare. You could only get them if anyone ever went to America. What about the things your mum and dad cooked? My dad can still make a mean roast dinner. That's my dad's dish. He's amazing at that. But my mum, my mum and dad were setting up a business when we were kids, and they were incredibly busy. And we, my mum used to just put stuff on the table, and I'd be like, "What's this?" And her response would be, "Just eat it." The appreciation for fine dining just was not part of my curriculum when it came to that i mean it also plays into the very first big thing which wasn't it an ad for tomato ketchup yeah we did a, a tomato ketchup commercial yeah that was um we had all the ladysmith black man bazo music over the top i think it won award it won awards basically that that commercial and uh, i played a little boy who picked his little brother and sister up came home and started cooking dinner for the family yeah i mean but that was complete fabrication because i wasn't cooking i had to go full method at 11 for that so, Russell, we didn't have a doorbell go, but your your food has arrived. Yes. Uh, your says from a uh, Japanese place near you called Tanakatsu. Mm-hmm. And Coco, who runs front of house, I think, has dropped it off. Great. They should have numbered them. If you find a pack marked number one... Yeah, got it. Have you? If you get that one open, I'm trying... Well, well you know, my aim is to please here, so... Ah, I think this is a katsu curry of some sort. 
What kind of katsu curry I do you think, think it I is? I think it's a pumpkin katsu curry. That's what I think it is. It's okay. I, it's, you think I'm doing my research, Russell? Yes, you're doing very well. You know that I don't eat meat. You're eating the same meal. No, so what I've got, and I have to thank dear old Deliveroo for making this happen. There's a place in Kennington called Tarot. So obviously your guys couldn't deliver to me because I'm in South London. Mm-hmm. And they've done me sort of similar things. I've gone for a bit of meat, so I've got variety. I hope that's not offensive to you. Are we starting to eat then? Do we start? I think we start to eat. This is called In for Lunch. We're Ooh. sitting here over on microphone, so um, you should have pumpkin mm. croquettes, katsu curry. Yes, this is lovely. This is lovely. What have you got? So I, I've got a katsu curry as well. Mine is a pork katsu curry, what is literally a tonkatsu. Mm. Um, the curry sauce uh, sauces is, uh, is a separate thing that the Japanese developed from their involvement, I believe, with the Raj. Really? Japanese food-wise, they're very good at, in the same way that, you know, tempura was inherited from the Portuguese. Wow. How old is the katsu then? katsu curry versions of this kind of curry sauce i think have been around since the 19th century but you'd have to check in with my friend tim anderson who won master chef and now has a a place in brixton called namban but he's good on that stuff i think um mid 19th century and the raj's interaction with japan if you've ever wondered why they have this kind of slightly weird curry sauce which you know we used to get in vesta chow mein as kids yes you put on your chips yeah. That's why, yeah, exactly. So listen, while we're eating, I'll carry yeah. on talking to you. You have a brilliant career, a varied career. You know, let's let's go through a recent thing that you were sort of doing, which was Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Edward Albee's uh, extraordinary full-on play. You don't really have any training, do you? Yeah, I didn't go to drama school, so I guess that's your endorsement, isn't it? If you go to drama school, then that is your label, you know, that goes in the brackets afterwards. No, I never had that. And I guess at the time when I was going... I was doing loads of theatre, so I got in at the National Theatre with Nick Heitner when he took it over. Started doing Henry V, uh, His Girl Friday, then we did Dark Materials, then we did The History Boys. And after that, it's like, well, you're not going to go to drama school now. But prior to that, I was like, I want to go to RADA. I want to go to fucking RADA. Was that really a thing that, you, that was in yeah, your head? I just wanted to go. I wanted to go. Does it sound like fun or because yes, you thought you needed it? Yes, it sounded amazing. Imagine going somewhere every single day you're acting. I was so envious of all the other actors on plays... And then it gave me a sort of imposter syndrome or an outsider vibe. I did wonder about that. I mean, you know, obviously entirely unneeded, undeserved, because you've made your mark and made it clear what your talents are. That doesn't stop what goes on on the inside of your head. No, definitely. I felt like I wasn't legitimised enough to have an opinion on things. When, When people would start talking about other actors or talking about like productions or, or like I'd, I'd work with actors who knew every producer, every director, they'd even know the editor of stuff. And I'd be like, I don't know that. Or I don't, should I know that? And why do I not know that? That production of Henry yeah. V, uh, who was it who played it at the National? Oh, Adrian Lester. Right. So a very famous one. Who was mm-hmm. the director? Nicholas Heitner. How was it turning up at the National the first day? Are you blessed with a, a certain confidence which enables you to walk through certain doors? I never know how I'm going to feel. I do, I do predominantly feel confident. I used to love table reads. As I'm getting older, I don't like them as much. The table read being the thing you do before you start rehearsal. That's right, yeah. When you have the read through, yeah. When everyone sits around. I used to enjoy that. And now I just want to get in, sit down. I hate doing the small talk before. I feel sweaty and clammy. And I just want to get on with it. Because I know that once I start my acting, I feel very confident in my acting. I guess that's what it was when I was saying about the imposter syndrome is the fact that I... I'm I'm so confident with what I can do. I I'm not, and I and I know that I can take direction, and I'm up for the challenge, and I'm I'm I don't mind notes. Note the shit out of me. I can work with it. It's it was the other stuff that really used to 
unbalanced me was being just just the small talk. It can be a bloody nightmare. It just didn't it didn't come naturally to me to me at all. So when everyone's sitting around telling their anecdotes about this actor and that experience, I was just like I can't I can't join in with this. But then they say action and I'm there. You know, everyone has their psychosis in their head, and every single job I do. I recognise at a certain point, or people around me are like, you know you do this in every single job, where you have like three weeks in, you're like, I'm shit, they don't like me, they wish they hadn't cast me, I shouldn't be doing this, and everyone's like, you do this every single time. Then it comes out and you're like, oh, actually, I got away with that. Oh, actually, that's fine. When you want to, uh, go find number two, box number two, should okay. tick a few boxes, if it. I've got this right. I'll, I'll find it now. Very nice. What's number two, Russell? Two is some uh, teriyaki salmon on rice. That looks flipping I think delicious. you've said also that teriyaki salmon is a thing salmon. of yours. Love, love salmon. And from this end, uh, Deliveroo and Taro sorted me out, <laughs> so I've gone for a chicken teriyaki while you've got the, um, the salmon teriyaki. Mmm, it's really good. So you said the History Boys was a big, big thing mm-hmm. in your life. That was 2004. And it's worth recapping just how extraordinary a cast in retrospect it was. It's where James Corden was made. It was where Dominic Cooper appeared for the first time. You were in there and a couple of others. Did you know when you were rehearsing that that you were working on something really important? That job changed all of our lives. All of us. All of us had worked to that point. But that, that thing, and they, people still reference that now, that was a, like, changed all of our lives. And we had no idea. No idea. I know, I saw it twice at the National. Did you? Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw, I saw you in it wow. twice. You also did it on Broadway, didn't you? Yeah, we did six months on Broadway. We did, but prior to that, we'd gone to Hong Kong, New Zealand and Sydney, so we did a nine-month tour. So all in all, we did that show, including the movie, including the radio play and the National Theatre, like two years. Has that bonded you to that cast? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was our drama school. The depth of connection you have to each other will see you through the rest of your lives. I, retrospectively, nostalgia, it's all like a dream and every show was fun and we had so much great time. But I have to be reminded, like Corden reminds me, that I used to fantasise about getting stabbed on the subway so I could have a show off. Just a surface wound, not like that, but just so I could have a show off. A little off. nick. A little, just a little slash somewhere that wasn't going to scar and wasn't going to like rupture internal organs. That's the sort of place you got to because you're like, I can't do these fucking lines anymore. I can't do this anymore. And you used to get out of the show and you'd be like, fuck, and then you'd be all right. But because there's eight boys, one of us would go down and then everyone would rally. Was anybody bulletproof? The late Richard Griffiths, the legend, was someone who did the whole run, never missed a show, was always... In it, was always up for a, a chat. He was someone who was a machine, a beautiful, well-oiled machine who led the show. There is often someone who leads the company, even though that's not their job. Yeah. Alan Bennett was there all the time and Alan was there present. But it, the way, reason it worked is it, it was a perfect balance of personalities, that show. It was so well cast, you know, because if you'd put someone in that, that role there who was really arrogant, obnoxious, n- not really like generous with his time or with his performance then your the show would have been horrific the key is is that you're in a fucking hit that makes a difference when you're in a show where people are queuing around the block and they're re- trying to get returns and they've got premium price tickets and everybody's talking about the show of course you're happy to be there you know it's just like magic it was like being in a boy band on broadway is it right that a well-known pop star led a, a standing ovation one night david bowie david bowie david bowie stood up with a man they stood up. <laughs> Tell us. He was, in a, he was in a white suit. And you're like... Oh, for God's sake. fucking bonkers. Had you already spotted him in the first half of the cast gone, David Bowie's in? 
you call them ADs. Is there any adrenaline boosters in tonight? That's a phrase I've never heard. Yeah, we've got any ADs in. Everyone came back, like Julia Roberts and Tom Hanks. And then one night, Harrison Ford was back there with Calista Flockhart. And we all came downstairs and was like, oh, my God, you've come back to say hello. And they were like, oh, uh, yeah, great show, great show. They weren't. Their minders had put them in stage door because they were waiting for the car to turn up. They didn't actually want to come back. And then all of us bombarded them. And they were like, yeah, yeah, well done, well done. But Paul Newman came back, the late Paul Newman. It's just, it was... Madness, but that's that's the difference with Broadway. Is that people come backstage? Famous people come backstage, and they're like, "I'm famous. I want to meet you. This is just what we do." Whereas in the UK, if someone famous comes backstage, British people are like, "Ooh, who the fuck do you think you are? <laughs> what makes what makes you think we want to hang out with you after the show?" You said that when you were in rehearsals, that you know you were dealing with stuff. Had you already come out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I came out when I was eighteen to my parents, and I was out to myself from like properly 15 16 probably i was like a late stage developing just like being an adult adulting how to be a fucking adult i just didn't know how to do it so i had i was developing i was doing these shows doing these plays falling in love with men that were unobtainable or having situations where i'm having to like look after myself and not really ready to i've always been someone that's felt like Things have happened and I'm doing things, but I don't feel old enough. And I've, I've always had that sort of thing. So when I came out, I was like, well, I'm going to come out because I know I'm gay. But then when I came out, it was like, I, should, I don't feel ready to be out and gay and talking about being gay. But it is. And then, and then suddenly you're moving out and doing plays and trying to be an adult. It didn't feel like there were there's obviously people there to help you. But I always felt slightly bewildered by it all, I guess. In... Um- some people's view, you've become something of a, either a, a spokesperson or a figurehead or someone to look to in the LGBT yeah. plus community. But I get the sense it was never a plan. Well, how can it be a plan? Who goes into anything? I think if you're from any minority and you become successful, you by proxy become an ambassador for that minority. So it was put upon me. But no, I don't think anyone ever sets out to be like, when I grow up, I want to be an ambassador for my king community. gay of the gay people. Yeah, I don't want to be king gay, a queen gay. I don't know who I don't know who says I want to be an ambassador for my people. But now it's just like the best gift, I guess. And it's just about being present and proud and open. And that seems to be just lead by example, I guess. That seems to be the best thing you can do. Is just by being like, I'm here, I'm working, I'm visible, and I'm out. And that in itself is kind of making steps forward. I have to say, we, we like to cue sound effects. So that was one of your three or, or, or less dogs. That was Rocky. I'm going to come off the number system. I'm going to tell you uh, what else is in your takeaway from Tanakatsu. So you've got a spicy tuna cucumber roll in there a, mm. a double salmon roll because you, you love yes, your salmon yes yes i've got that oh my god no, there, there should be some yellowtail sashimi and <gasps> some um and, and two miso soups oh this is going to last us for the whole of the lockdown on a different food matter yeah. fish fingers mm-hmm. it, it was quite advanced at one point wasn't it oh yeah a fish finger sandwich done properly is there's nothing better just much like a tomato salad I was doing a show, doing The Sister, which is coming out later on this year for ITV, a new Neil Cross drama. I started to be like, and this is the same situation I got into as a kid with my mum, is that I say, I really want fish fingers every morning. And then suddenly you'd have six, six fish fingers every morning turn up. And then after a few weeks, you're like, oh, I don't really want fish fingers anymore. And they'd be there and you start leaving them. And then people start to get really sniffy with you and upset that you're not eating your fish fingers when you ask for fish fingers. 
you should eat your fish fingers. And that's remind me when I was my mum, I'd say to my mum, I really like jam sandwiches. And then for six months, for six months, you'd have you'd jam have, sandwiches. Yeah. And it would just be like, and you'd be like, I don't want jam sandwiches. I'd be like, you said you like jam sandwiches. I'm like, yeah, but not every single fucking day. Bananas? La- banana Bananas are a big thing. Banana and eggs every day. Always. Like, it's all, like, never, are I'm, you about to reach I'm, for a bunch of bananas? I'm, nev- I'm never more than half a metre away from a banana. <laughs> that's, that sounds like a euphemism. It does. You're it? never more than no, half I'm... a metre away from a banana. <laughs> you know, that's brilliant. <laughs> It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. I've got to talk to you about art. Yeah. Because you have a podcast called Talk Art, and it's with um, yeah. with a mate of yours, uh, Rob Diamond. Yeah, Robert yeah. Um, Diamond. He's, he's yeah. described as a gallerist, so he's in the art world. Yeah, he, he he's a director of a gallery in Margate called Carl Friedman Gallery, and they run uh, right. a print publishing a company called Counter Editions, which does art multiples with world, world-renowned artists. How did that come about? I've, I've always been a visual person. I've always loved loved cartoons and comic books. And I think I then got into pop art, so Roy Lichtenstein, Keith Haring, Andy Warhol. And then when I was at college, I went to see the Saatchi show and it blew my mind. It was all the YBA movement. And what was happening is it was actually happening at that moment in time. And I remember going there by myself and wandering in and seeing Ron Muick's My Dead Dad on the floor, which was this ratio smaller scale of uh, a moulding of his dead dad basically i remember it just blew my mind and then you'd look up and you'd see mark quinn's bloodhead and then you see gavin, I remember that gavin turks it looked like a, a sleeping bag just like rest against the floor but it was bronze and then tracy emmy's bed was in there then there was damien Hurst's flock divided which was like the, the lambs cut in half and then all, all in formaldehyde and i just i just remember being totally blown away by it and it changed everything and the fact that that was ours that was when britain had the art scene was london Britpop, or the uk it was literally like fucking hell this is the epicenter of the world it felt like for me so i've always been like that but i didn't really share that with many people until i met rob and i used to well, i still do collect tracy m in drawings and i with my history voice movie money i bought a tracy m in monoprint and i was at the south bank show awards one night for the history boys and I was sat near Tracy. We hung out in the bar 
and got drunk. And then she said, do you want to come and escort me to a couple of parties? And I was like, fuck, <laughs> yes, I do. And we went out and she sort of meowed her way around London. I went around with her and we turned up at these parties and everyone was looking at me like, who the fuck are you? And I was just like, this is amazing. And then the next day I woke up and I got a text message from her saying like, hey, it was really nice to meet you. And she called me Pokey because my ears stick out and that's been my nickname since. And then we just became really good friends. But she had a retrospective in Edinburgh uh, about 14 years ago, 13 years ago. No, maybe it's 12 years ago. And she sat me next to Rob. And we sat there and we started talking about Tracy Emin drawings. I said, oh, I bought this drawing from the History Boys money. He said, what drawing did you buy? I said, it's called No Idea Why They Can Jump So High. And he's like, you bought that? I was like, yeah. He said, I had that on reserve. I didn't buy it in the end, but I wanted that drawing, but I bought another drawing. You bought that? I was like, yeah. I said, what drawings have you got? He said, well, I've got Ripped Up. I've got Poor Love. And I was like, oh my God, I love Poor Love. Anyway, we sat there talking about the titles of Tracy Emin drawings. Of Tracy Emin. It should be said for anybody who's curious, there is a Margate connection because Tracy Emin, of course, grew up in Margate. Exactly, yes. So Tracy Emin's from Margate. She's she's going back to Margate now. She's like the queen of Margate. She put Margate on the map. And a lot of her art is autobiographical and references her childhood. So you meet Rob. At what point did you decide that there, there was a podcast in this? Well, so, long story short, we're complete geeks. We would sit and talk about art. Everyone around us will move away and we just sort of fall into this vortex of, of art where people have no idea what we're saying. Like, like we're talking Polari of art. And when, so then he was, I got asked to do this podcast in White City and he said, um, do you want to come and do it with me? They've asked me to talk about editions. He said, new collected editions from counter editions, come do it. So we did it. And we were meant to be being interviewed and asked loads of questions. We just started like talking to each other and the, the, the interviewer just sat back and watched us. And they went out and then my mum and his mum turned around and said, you know, you sound really good together. Why don't you just do like something else together, like a radio show or something? I said, I said, well, fuck it. Let's try and do a podcast. Let's see what happens because everyone's doing it. And Jesse Ware's Table Manners was doing really well. And I, I'd been on that. And it was like, let's just try and do it. So I said, we know enough people. Let's just do one me and you chat. And then the next one, we invite some people along. And so many people were so generous at the beginning. And then it's just, like, grown. And we've literally today just... You're on what, Series 5 now? Series 5 now. We've had over a million downloads. And today we just put out Elton John. And it's like... It's like, that's a benchmark. If I want to find out a bit about someone I'm about to interview, I think it's only polite, and they've got a podcast, I'm definitely going to listen to it because I think I'm, I'm going to get an insight yeah. into them. Now, don't take this yeah. the wrong way. I don't get much of an insight into you from Talk Heart. No. And as far as a broadcaster goes, that's a massive compliment. You know what it is as well, is it's a different hat. I don't feel like I'm Russell Tovey interviewing this artist. Come and meet me, Russell Tovey, interviewing, like, like you're doing yours out to lunch with your name. I don't, as is Talk Heart. And what I've found is when we've done live recordings, afterwards people are like, oh, I loved you in years and years, or I loved you in him and her. Can I get a selfie? And I feel really bewildered because I'm like, oh, yeah, shit. I've become something else. I facil- I'm there to facilitate these people who I'm fans of to do their thing. It's not about me on any level. Should we match up our dishes? Um, from Tonokatsu, you should have a yellowtail sashimi. Uh, from Taro down in South London, I just got a mixed sashimi with salmon got it, got and mackerel. Tell me about your own collection of art. I spend, I spend most of my money on art. On Predominantly, most of my earnings goes on collecting art. Um, I'm obsessed and I am an addict. 
basically. I'm a complete art addict. I am, yeah. My name is Russell Tovey, <clears throat> and I'm powerless in the face of art. I am, totally. I'm totally, totally hooked. And I have things in storage, and I bring things out of storage, and I have things, I have like five things being framed at the moment. I don't have anywhere for them to go. I fantasise about having a massive house like with 20 different rooms so I can just hang things in so they can sit properly. The dream would be to have a little foundation one day where it's my collection in a big space that I change around. But yeah, Weren't you invited to display your collection by the Royal Academy? No, no. so I did uh, a house tour with Freeze patrons and then I was meant to do one with the Royal Academy but then I was uh, I got a TV show so I couldn't do it. But I do like, I like sharing my collection with people. I like talking about it. Uh, if an artist, if I love an artist my heart rate races and I get shaky and I get more starstruck meeting artists than I do actors or directors. I could meet Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and I could be super cool. I'd be like, this is cool, I'm meeting them. Wow. But, but if, if you met Hockney? I'd fall apart. That's the dream for talk art. I literally would fall apart. I went to this opening for an artist called Carol Dunham years ago who is uh, an American artist. He's of a, an older generation, but a bit of an art star. And his daughter is Lena Dunham, who wrote Girls. So I went to this opening and I met Carol Dunham and then I met Lena Dunham and we talked for ages. And in my head, I was like, this is fucking cool. And then in the corner of my eye, I saw an artist I love called Joe Bradley. And I was like, fuck, that's Joe Bradley. And as I was leaving, I was like, oh, shit, I want to go and talk to Joe Bradley. I can't talk to Joe Bradley. Oh, God, he's, why is he going to care what I think? I can't talk to Joe Bradley. And then this woman came over and she went, oh, hi. Um, I just want to say we love you in Looking. Me and my husband watch Looking. I said, oh, cool, which is this show on HBO. And it's like a, a gay show. And I was like, well, that's really cool. You and your husband watch it. Wow. I went, oh, I'm going to go now. But I really want to go and say hello to Joe Bradley, but I haven't got the balls. And she went, oh, Joe Bradley's my husband. And I went, oh, fuck. All right. Could, can I meet him? She went, yeah, he'd love to meet you. And I went over and he was like, hi, we just saw you over there. wanted to come say hello. And I'm like, I want to say hello to you. And then I, as I was walking downstairs, I got an email come through about this drawing, which I was desperate to get by this artist called Tory Thornton. And I had to go and sit on a step with the shakes. And I run my mum up and I went, mum, I've just been opening for Carol Dunham. I met Lena Dunham. Joe Bradley's there. What's his looking? I've just got off with that Tory Thornton drawing I want. She went... I've no idea what you're talking about. I don't have a clue what these references are, but I'm really, really happy for you. I said, oh, thank you, Mum. Thank you. It's like... So basically, your work has given you this access. Do, do you... Do your mates get you to help them buy art? Is it true that you've helped James Corden buy yeah, art? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've advised James on stuff to get. And I collect, like, a serious collector. But a lot of people can't do that because it's like a budget thing or they don't really have as much interest or they don't know as much or whatever. And it's, that's the whole point of talk art, is that we're just trying to do this really fun, gossipy, educational thing. You're eating healthily today. You've got double salmon rolls and, you know, plain carbs and protein. You started going to the gym. Uh, I, I got probably into the gym six, seven years ago. That was two things. I wanted to... I was feeling pretty insecure and I wanted to feel more present. I had an experience when I was um, 18 where I got uh, beaten up on a train and stabbed in the head and that really psychologically screwed me up and I used to be quite slight, I guess. It definitely affected me uh, mentally. Well, being beaten up and stabbed is going to affect anyone. Did you did you go and get any help for it, therapy? No, no, no I should have done. I should have done, but I didn't. I didn't really... And I didn't press charges because I was worried I'd see him again in the train and then they would kill me. It was... It's horrible. When it came out of nowhere, it was just 
I was wearing a cardigan. And I think that that angered them at the time. It's an outrageous thing. To I mean, I, I mean, I was taking the piss, <laughs> and so I think that stayed with me. And then I was in uh, Mykonos. Went on Mykonos, which is a, a gay mecca, and everybody there is tat tanned and incredible bodies. And I was there with my uh, at the time fine body. I'm very pale skinned, and I just felt like shit. And I came back and I was like, I can't feel like this anymore. I need to make a difference. And I thought the time to do it is to kind of just go to the gym, be, feel more present in your body, feel more present in myself. So there's that. And then the twofold is, is that I wanted to change my casting. I wanted to see what would happen if I became, because I was trying to, again, adult, adulting, I was struggling with trying to transition from kid to teenager to adult. And my casting-wise reflected that as I played a lot of lovable dickheads, a lot of people uncomfortable, a lot. I was always like the embarrassing crush. It felt like if someone found me attractive, it was like you didn't really admit it, but you might have done. And I was like, I don't want to be that anymore. I wanted to see if I could change it. So going to the gym felt like something that had an active um, projection involved in starting that journey. And it did. It did. It did change the way that people. Well, it worked because you got cast as a superhero. Right, exactly. But who's to say that I wouldn't have got cast as a superhero if I hadn't gone to the gym? It did feel like I suddenly had the ability to play more roles. For me, I guess it it just psychologically made me feel more present, or made me feel more holding my my space in the world. But that takes a long time, you know. And I'm 38 now, and. You know, everyone goes through psychological shit. I think everyone, when you leave high school, you should just go straight into therapy because I had no fucking idea who I was. I used to pretend, I used to walk around with a deep voice when my voice hadn't broken because I was terrified. Well, pretending to be down Pretending here. my balls had dropped when they hadn't yet. I didn't get, like, pubes till I was about 15 and a half. I was terrified. I'd be like a hairless gimp forever. And it was like... <laughs> I was always terrified. I was a very late, late star. So you do all these things and you pretend to be something. And I guess, you know, being gay, you, you have this performance you put on to be with girls and to, to you know, that you keep up. You have, feel like you have to keep up. Well, I was thinking the Mykonos thing and, you know, Tupel, you know, I'm not going to stereotype queer culture as one thing or another. But there is a body image element to certain portions of it, which can be surely quite... If you go Mykonos, yes. If you, that's all it's about. That is pre- My advice is don't go to fucking Mykonos uh, again. Exactly. <laughs> and I went back. I went back and I was like, this is still horrible and shit. So I'm never doing this again. You talked right at the beginning about the whole business of choices for an actor, the th- things you're going to do. From the outside, it looks mm. like you have it sus. So you were, small virus allowing, you were about to be on Broadway in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. You did Angels in America at the National. You've had these big tv shows mm. here and in the u.s is there a plan is there something else mm-hmm. do you want to do more movies or, or do you do you not think in those terms i don't there's never a plan it's all about characters and when the right character comes along i would always choose a play over anything else the play's the thing for me so if a good show comes up uh, and it's playing a role that i want to play over doing a movie i'd do the play i'm writing now so i've got like two shows in development that's my next dream is to have one of them picked up or both writing for screen yeah screen TV TV I'm I'm obsessed with TV I love movies I'd love to do more movies however TV for me is has and always will be the thing that for me personally as an actor I thrive on I love it is that because you can get deeper into a character over a longer period of time yeah I love I love a recurring series and I've been at like doing them shows I've done so many shows where we've done three or four seasons of them and it's just been the best feeling ever because you're just coming back to a family that's the dream now is to be 
as I'm getting older to have more of a creative ability. I think I'm incredibly lucky because I've got the podcast has been something I produce and I'm so proud of that. And that feels like a, another career I've made for myself. But I like, I love being an actor and I like taking up other, doing the roles. But I want to, I want to create stuff now. I want to make stuff and put it out there in the world that is me. Have you found the art world accepting of you? Yeah, I guess when I first started, there was an intrigue about me. I think if you're an actor and you're a collector, there's there's definitely open arms for that because artists want to have their their work with an actor and, you know, galleries, it's an interesting angle. Yeah, so I, I've always felt very, very welcomed. I think some people have always been a bit like, "What? why are you here? Sort of feeling. I've had yeah. of certain parties in there. But, you know, doing this, doing this podcast has also felt like it's kind of made people see that it's for real this is a side story but i went to see network yeah brian cranston eva van hover the director yeah yeah eva van hover and i was actually sent to review the restaurant offering on stage which is quite a fun idea but they had this thing which was that the actors were to patrol the stage before the audience even came in so i'm sitting there the cast coming on and then three of them make a beeline for me and say do you mind if we sit down they're completely out of character all they wanted to talk about was restaurants and i've I've always been a little bit starstruck by a great actor and i i knew the three particular character actors uh, whose work i knew very very well and I thought it was hilarious that there I was, delighted with myself to be on stage. There were these three guys who wanted to discuss the finer details of London restaurants, you know? What was the food like in the show? Did you give it a good review? It was fine. It was solid. <laughs> I know that sounds like the worst kind of praise, isn't it? So tell me, Russell, when this ends, firstly, is there a fantasy thing in your head that you mm-hmm. want to do, uh, go and do out in the world? I just want to go to my local pub and have a pint. I want it to still be summer. I want the beer garden open. I want all my mates there. I want to start drinking in the afternoon and then go all the way through and we're all slightly sunburned and then come back and order pizza and just sit around. That's, they are, they, I feel emotional talking about it. They are my hap- That's when I'm at my happiest, when I'm with my best mates and my boyfriend and the dogs and we're just having a beer in the sun and, you can't, and, you, and there's no curfew. That's the dream for me. That's the absolute dream. Well, all, all I've been able to give you is a great Japanese takeaway. Yes, and also Japanese food. More Japanese food, yes. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I was going to say, Russell Tovey, thank you for joining me for in for Lunch. Goodbye. I hope you, you have a great day with you and your bloke and the dogs. Thank you. And all this Japanese food is going to last us forever. Yes, it's amazing. Yeah, fill the fridge, mate. Fill the fridge. It's filled. It's filled. It's been a pleasure, and I'm a big fan, and I'm so happy you asked me on. It's an honour. Well, the honour is all mine. So great to chat to the genuinely lovely Russell there. Russell ate Japanese, care of Tanakatsu in EC1 London, and mine was from Taro in Kennington, South London, both brought to us by those good people at Deliveroo, if you want to try it for yourself. And if you'd like second helpings, you greedy lot, please feel free to listen back to more episodes from Series 1 and 2 of Out to Lunch wherever you get your podcasts. And if you could stretch to a five-star review and share us, oh, we'd be so happy. Out to Lunch is a something else and Jay Rayner production. The music was written, arranged and performed by me, Jay Rayner and Robert Rickenberg. The mix engineer was Josh Gibbs. The assistant producer was Rosie Marotra. The producer is Selena Reem and the executive producer is Darby Doris. Additional production is from Steve Ackerman. Next episode, we're going back in time to those heady days when you could still eat with people in a restaurant face-to-face with a, an episode recorded pre-lockdown. I'll be out for lunch with burlesque queen, model and businesswoman, it's Dita Von Tees. Have you ever had a cream pie in the face? No. It's one of the most liberating things you can do. Mm-hmm.